The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah in the second chapter and the seventh verse. The seventh verse in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. We are continuing our consideration and study of this second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And our reason for doing so is that it seems to me to be a word that is addressed so directly to the world at this present hour. It's addressed to individuals. It is addressed to mankind in general. Here is the prophet speaking for God to the nation of Israel at a time when they were in a condition of great perplexity and almost of utter hopelessness. Everything had gone wrong. They were down in the depths. And they were threatened by a very powerful attack from the Chaldeans, who were gathering a great army together to attack them and to destroy their city and to carry them away captive into the land of Babylon. That was their condition. It could not have been more acute or more desperate. But still there is a hope. God in his mercy still sends another prophet to address them. And he does so. This is his first message. We have it in this chapter. He uh, confronts them with their position and he asks the question, Why are you in this condition? What is the matter? How have things gone wrong? What's gone wrong? And he tells them very plainly and clearly that there's only one answer. And that is that they have turned their backs upon God. They've forsaken God. They've rebelled against him. They've gone their own ways. They've taken up the worship of idols. They've followed a way of vanity. The essential trouble, they say, is that they have rejected God and the great salvation that he was offering to them. Now then, that is the great theme of the entire message. But a very wonderful thing is done in this chapter. God, as it were, comes down and meets these people on their own level and condescends to reason and to argue with them. He takes it step by step and stage by stage. He shows it them in detail. Now, there can be very little doubt as to the reason why God did this with them. And the reason, of course, is this is to show that unbelief is something which is entirely wrong. It's wrong at every single point. Now, that's the great principle. It's a principle that runs right through the whole Bible. There is nothing to be said in favor of unbelief. There is nothing to be said in favor of a person who is not a Christian, in other words. There is nothing right about people whose life is not based solidly upon God himself. There's nothing right about it. Well, now, that is proved and demonstrated by taking it up, I say, point by point, step by step, and stage by stage, in order to show that in every single respect, it is wrong. In other words, to put it in another way, there is nothing whatsoever to be said for unbelief. It is madness, it is blindness, it is senseless. To turn your back upon God and to reject his salvation is, according to the Bible, the height of irrationality. The Bible's never tired of saying this, that the ultimate trouble with a man who is not a Christian is that he is a fool, which means that he's a foolish person, which means that he's not thinking straightly, he's not using his mind, his intelligence, he's muddled. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Now that is the fundamental proposition. 
And I say that that is the situation by which we are confronted at the present time, in the terrible predicament of the world today. And in the midst of all the unhappiness and the heartbreak in so many an individual, men and women still are doing everything but the one thing that they should do, namely turn back to God. Why is this? What's the matter? Well, the answer is still the same, and that's why I'm calling your attention to this chapter. You see, mankind doesn't change, and God doesn't change. As these children of Israel behaved, so people are still behaving today. Well, now then, we've been working through this argument. What is it God says? Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and have become vain? Why have you turned away from me, says God? What have you found wrong in me? What have I done? What is the particular charge that you bring against me? And of course, there's no answer. They had no charge. And then, uh, still more, why have you gone after vanity? Look what you're worshipping. Look at your idols. Where's the sense in that? This is God reasoning. And he says, why have you yourselves become so foolish? You've become vain and empty, even like the idols that you're worshipping. As the author of the 115th Psalm put it, he says, these idols, they're no use to anybody. They've got eyes, but they can't see. They've got mouths, but they can't speak. They've got hands, they can't handle. They've got feet, but they can't walk. And he says, they that make them are like unto them. Foolish, vain, and empty. That was the first thing. Then the second thing was, which we considered last week in verse 6, they'd also rejected his wonderful salvation. Neither said they... Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness? And this is an amazing thing still. That men and women forget what God has done for our salvation. That astounding thing that he did when he sent his only begotten son into this world. Yea, when he sent him even to the cross on Calvary's hill, to suffer and to die. It means nothing to them. Nothing at all. They blaspheme it. They jeer at it. They laugh at it. The cross and the blood of Christ. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? Well, but that's what these people, uh, are that is what these people were guilty of in shadow. That is what people are actually guilty of today. Our position is infinitely worse than that of these Jews. Christ has been, Calvary has happened. And yet men and women are not interested. They're not concerned. They don't say, with Isaac, what's when I behold, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt and all my pride. No, no, they're not interested. It's a terrible thing. Well, now, this, you see, this is the analysis which we have here of unbelief. My dear friend, if you were not a Christian in this congregation, I would solemnly ask you, do you realize the implications of that position? Do you realize what you're doing, what you're rejecting? Have you ever really considered what it is to say you're not interested in God and that you don't want him? That you're all right, you've got your education, your knowledge, you've got your money, never had it so good, things are all right, you don't want God. Have you ever really considered what that means? Have you ever realized what it means to spurn God's offer of pardon and forgiveness through the blood of his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever considered it? It's a terrible thing. Yet you know that is what a man does who isn't a Christian. He says to me the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross is nothing at all. I'm not interested. He's not interested in forgiveness. Not a bit. Do you realize the consequences of that? Do you realize exactly what it means? You see, it's so simple to say intellectually and in an argument that you've no use for Christianity. But have you ever considered it step by step and stage by stage? Do you realize... What you're doing and what you're rejecting. Now that's what, our, that's what God is asking these people to consider. That's what he's asking us to consider. And tonight we come on to the next step, which is found in this seventh verse. Listen, God is coming down, as it were, and reasoning with them. He said, I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage 
an abomination. What does this mean? Well, here's the next step. They were guilty of a terrible failure to realize the benefits of salvation and the nature of the life into which God had brought them. You see, he doesn't stop at saying, I brought you out of Egypt. I took you out of that hard bondage. He doesn't stop at saying that, and the gospel doesn't. The gospel doesn't stop at the cross and that forgiveness. It goes on to the Christian life. God said, I brought you out of Egypt. Yes, but I brought you in to this land, this plentiful country, the land of Canaan. But that meant nothing to them also. They were rejecting that. They despised it. Now, this is a very terrible thing. But as you read the story of the children of Israel, you will find that they were constantly guilty of this. I read that section out of Psalm 106 just now, because there you've got a very perfect summary of the way in which these foolish children of Israel behaved. They despised the pleasant land. And they despised on the way to the land the manner that God gave them. You read the 11th chapter of the book of Numbers, and you'll find the children of Israel were grumbling and complaining. Oh, they said, that we could be back with the flesh pots of Egypt and still have the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But we've got nothing, they said, but this manner. This manner. They despise it. They speak in that derogatory manner concerning it. This manner. What was it? Well, it was God feeding them miraculously, but they utterly despised it and spat as it were upon it. And here they are in the land. They despise the present land. All that God had done for them, they felt was nothing. And they grumbled and they complained. They said, we're having a hard time, this God of ours, with his Ten Commandments and his moral law. Why should we be hemmed in like this? Look at these other nations. They're worshipping other gods. They're in a better position than we are. So they turned their backs on God. And they made their idols and they began to worship them. And they took their burnt offerings and sacrifice. Ah, oh, God and all he has. They despised it. They disliked it. They felt that God's way was a narrow and a dull and a boring way. And so he tells them that they were actually guilty of hating it and of despising it, and of turning to these other things instead of them. Now, my dear friend, I'm calling attention to this because, you know, that's exactly what everybody is doing tonight who is not a Christian. That is precisely the position. You are not only refusing pardon and forgiveness, you are not only rejecting the only thing that can save you from hell. You are rejecting the benefits of salvation. You are rejecting the Christian life with all its glories. That's the trouble. Now, why do people do this? It seems to me there are just two main answers to that question. And I want to hold them before you this evening. The first explanation is quite obvious, isn't it? They clearly have got a false view of this life. You see, the children of Israel had a false view of the life that God had called them to in the land of Canaan. That's why they hated it. That's why they despised it. That's why they turned away from it and took up the other. And it's still the same. People reject this Christianity, this Christian life, because their whole notion of the Christian life is wrong. It's false. What is it? What is the common view of this Christian life? Well, I needn't weary you. I needn't take your time by reminding you of what people by nature think the Christian life is. This is the view, isn't it? They think of it primarily and essentially as something that they produce themselves. Something that they do and something that they have to do. The common idea is that a man makes himself a Christian by refraining from certain things and by taking up and doing certain other things. Now, I suggest that that is the common view of Christianity and of the Christian life. In other words, it's thought of almost exclusively in moral and in ethical terms. Now, I'm quite certain that I'm right when I say that the vast majority of people at this moment in this country who are not Christians, are Christians for that very reason. 
They think of it and conceive of it solely in terms of a morality or an ethical behavior. That's all it is. You don't do certain things, you must stop doing certain things, and you must begin to do other things. And they don't like it. What do they say about it? Well, they despise it, exactly as the children of Israel despised the life of God in the land of Canaan of old. The great charge against it is, of course, that it's narrow. Narrow-minded. A small, cramped, narrow life. Isn't that the common objection to Christianity? Why, they say, look at it. It just confines you to one book. You say that's got the whole of truth in it. Just one book. You're ignorant. But then it cuts out so many interests. It prohibits so many things, they say. It prohibits, indeed, everything that seems to be attractive. It stands between us and what we like and what we want to do. They say the trouble with your Christianity is that it's always saying no. It's a series of negations, of prohibitions and vetoes and restraints. It's that thing that I'm always coming up against and saying no to me. It stands barring entrance into places that I want to go into and other people are going in. I can't go. I was brought up religiously. I was taught to go to chapel or to church. I was sent to Sunday school. And there it is. It's always standing in my way and I'm determined to free myself of it all. I'm not going on any longer with this negation, this negative, this narrow, cramped kind of life. Isn't that the argument? The authorities of, concerning Sunday school work tell us that their greatest problem in battle at the moment is the whole of the adolescence. Why do the adolescents want to, want to give up religion? Well, that's the reason, isn't it? They feel religion has been something that's been cramping down, hemming them in, restricting them, restraining them, standing, but they want to be men, they want to be women. Oh, it's the same thing with many who come up from the country to London. How often have we heard them saying it? I'm getting out of this, they say. Life's too small here. Everybody knows us. Life governed by a chapel or something. I want to get up to London. There I'll get freedom. There I'll get liberty. There I'll really see life, a life worth living, and I'll be able to enjoy myself. I want to get out of this narrow, cramped, confined little atmosphere. Isn't that the charge? And there is further charges, of course, that it's such a terribly dull life, a boring life. Fancy having to read your Bible on Sunday instead of the Sunday newspapers. How dull it is. How boring it is. Nothing interesting, nothing exciting, this. Of course, they're quite wrong even at that point, you see. They seem to know nothing about the romances that are to be found in the Bible, the great love stories. They don't know they're there, of course. Oh, they say it's always Ten Commandments. Everything against dull, narrow, uninteresting. And then, of course, it tells you to pray. Oh, and isn't it terrible? Prayer meetings, the height of boredom. Awful. Nothing exciting there. Nothing stimulating. Christian people, look at them. These are the arguments, aren't they? Dowdy, back numbers, anachronisms in this modern world. They don't know they're alive. They don't know what life is. They don't know what the world's like. Look at them. They're afraid, that's all. They're cowards. They're afraid to venture out. They're victims of mere custom and habit and tradition. They're half men, half women. They've never really lived. They've never expressed themselves. Ah, oh, they're hopelessly repressed. They're psychological cases, most of them. Isn't that what's said? Christianity, you see, has a dull life, a narrow life, an uninteresting life, a boring life. A life that stands between us and the full expression of all the greatness that is within us. A life that has no enjoyment, in the words of the poet. It's a life which causes us ever to live, to scorn delights and live laborious days. Miserable, unhappy, wretched life that it is. Now that I am suggesting to you, you agree I know, you must, you've heard it said so often. That is the reason why most people are not Christian tonight. They feel there's nothing to recommend this, it's something to be escaped from. You see, they're saying it in a large way in communism. What's Christianity? The dope of the people, the dope of the masses, the opiate of the people. Something that's been keeping people down, 
Standing. There are many people like that tonight in the various political parties, especially on the left. They believe that Christianity has been the greatest enemy of progress. It's an absolute lie, of course, but that's what they think. And that's why they'll have nothing to do with it. And the whole world feels tonight that with these gigantic problems of the whole world divided into the two camps and the curtain and these tremendous atomic powers... Oh, that all this, it's so small, it's so irrelevant, talking about your own little soul and talking about you a little bit of self. It's not big enough, this. It's such a small thing. It's such a cramped thing. Like the children of Israel, they despise the pleasant land and are not interested in what God has provided, nor the kind of life that he would have us live. That's the first reason why people uh, do not uh, become Christian. That's why they don't live this Christian life. That's why they reject it. They've got a false view of it. But let me put all this positively. And I prefer to put it like this. It's because it has never entered into their conscious awareness as to the real truth concerning this life. Oh, it's because they don't know what it really is and what it has to give. That's the tragedy. You see, it's the whole trouble with this unbeliever. He doesn't know all of them. He doesn't know God. That's why he turns his back on him. If only he knew God. There's nothing more wonderful than to know God. Our Lord Jesus Christ gloried in that above everything else. But these people, they don't know. They don't know. It's... It's this tragic, sad ignorance of the being of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and his dying upon the cross. If only they saw what it is, they'd begin to speak as Isaac Watts spoke, but they haven't seen it. They're blind, can't see it. And it's the same, you see, with the Christian life itself. Now look at these children of Israel. God brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, the promised land. What happened there? Well, he tells them, when he entered, he defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. They despised the pleasant land. But what were they despising? Well, listen. I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. You notice the terms? I brought you into a plentiful country. Well, this was the term that God kept on using, wasn't it? He said he was going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, you know, not just uh, rations day by day, not just uh, an adequate amount, uh, uh, not just enough to keep you from starvation, not perhaps just a little bit extra. No, no, a land flowing with milk and honey. I brought you into a plentiful country. A superabundance that you might eat the fruit and the goodness thereof. But it wasn't that to the children of Israel. Oh no, it was a miserable place to be in. They thought they were having a rather hard bargain. Why should they as God's people be denied so much? These other people could marry whoever they liked. They could do what they liked seven days a week. That was their life. Oh, this life. Nothing in it. Hopeless. They despised it. But you see what they're despising? They never understood this plentifulness. They never appreciated the fruit that was being offered them. Oh, they'd had to work hard in another land and slave. But here they'd been told that it was a land of springs. Well, it's such a fruitful land, they wouldn't have to do much work here if they only obeyed God's rules. They'd be eating plentifully of the fruit and of the goodness of the land. It wasn't a hard land. It wasn't a barren wilderness that he suddenly sent them into in order that they might have to dig it up and put in their manures, their artificials, and, all, and at last, perhaps after many, many years, reap a crop. No, no, it was already a land flowing with plentifulness, abundance of fruit and of goodness for them. But they saw nothing in it. Oh, my dear friend, you know, the man who isn't a Christian and who rejects uh, the Christian message and who spurns the offer of the Christian life is in a very much worse case even than these Israelites. He is rejecting something infinitely more glorious. 
What are the terms that are used about Christianity, about the Christian life, about the blessings of salvation? Well, let me just take out one or two terms that are used at random. These are the terms that I find used in the New Testament. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You notice the term? So great salvation. Or take the term that the Apostle Paul used there in Ephesians 3.8. He says unto me, you am less than the least of all saints. Was this grace given? He's being called into the ministry. And he says he's very proud of it, to be a preacher of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Unto me, you am the le- less than the least of all saints. Was this grace given? What for? Well, that I might preach amongst the Gentiles. This miserable, cramped, narrow, confined, boring Christianity. This little Christian life. No, no. The unsearchable riches of Christ. You notice his terms? The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what I'm preaching, he says. That's what I'm going to offer to these Gentiles. That's what I'm going to proclaim throughout the whole world. This is the evangel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then that amazing climax at which he arrived, you remember, at the end of the chapter, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. My dear friend, this is Christianity. This, you know, is the Christian life. What's true about it? Well, let me tell you some of the things. I'm only going to give you some headings. You know, the first thing you've got to realize is this, that you're never called upon to make yourself a Christian. Get rid of that immediately. Of course, if a man's got to make himself a Christian, well then, of course, the bondage of Egypt was nothing in comparison to the bondage of such a man. If I thought I'd got to make myself a Christian, well then, I say, that would be to me the height of slavery. You know what it means, don't you? You've got to keep the law of God absolutely perfectly. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That's what he asks. You've got to go out and imitate Christ. You've got to live that perfect life. You've got to walk through the streets of the city of London, not only without sinning, but never even sinning in your mind or in your imagination. You've got to be pure in your heart. You try and do it. Well, some men have tried doing it. Martin Luther tried. Poor fellow. Look at him. He had to go out to the world to do it. He saw that at a glance. He said, as long as I stay in the world, I'm done for. I can't do it. It's a whole-time job. So he became a monk. There he is. Look at him in his cell. What's he doing? Fasting, sweating, praying, counting his beads, reading his scripture. And the more he does, the more unworthy he finds himself. Oh, that is the height, I say, of slavery and of utter serfdom. But that isn't Christianity. The Protestant Reformation came out of this discovery that that is not how one becomes a Christian. But that one becomes a Christian by being justified freely by God himself in Jesus Christ. That it's a gift. Justification by faith only. That we are saved by grace and that not of ourselves. And by faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. This is the whole beginning of the gospel. Look here, God even says that to the children of Israel, and it was true of them. He says, I brought you into a plentiful land. They could never have got there themselves, you know. They were slaves in Egypt. They hadn't got a gun, and they hadn't got any implement of war between them. They had nothing. And there were the taskmasters and the whips and the forces of Pharaoh and all his chariots and all his horses and all his men. They were completely helpless. If they had to get out of there into the land of Canaan, well, it was a sheer impossibility. It could never have been done. They'd have been killed, every man of them. But God says to them, I brought you into the plentiful country, and of course he did. He brought them out. He led them on the way. He took them in. He did everything. He put them there. It was a gift. And this is the first thing we have to say always about this Christian life and this glorious salvation. You're not to make yourself a Christian. You can't. Nobody can. Nobody ever has done. Who makes Christians? God. We are his workmanship. 
created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works that we might walk in them. It is God's work. It's a gift of God. Salvation is a pure gift from beginning to end. By grace are he saved through faith. Had you realized that much, my friend? To reject this is to reject a gift, a free gift. God doesn't ask anything of you except that you acknowledge your sin, you realize your utter failure and hopelessness, and that you cast yourself unreservedly upon his love and mercy and compassion in his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's all he asks. He doesn't ask you to produce righteousness. He doesn't ask you to produce good works. He doesn't ask you to produce some superhuman effort. He simply says, you come to me like this, as a pauper, as a penitent, as one who's helpless, come saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply, to thy cross I cling. He doesn't ask anything of you, except that you see your need and that you're prepared to receive the free gift of his grace and of his great and glorious salvation. Oh, my dear friend, have you realized that? But wait a minute, this is only the introduction. What else? Well, you see, he gives us in that way new life. I brought you into this plentiful country. Christianity is not only being forgiven. It is that. I don't want to minimize that. I'd be lost and done without that. But it doesn't stop at that. That's only again that kind of introduction. The essence of Christianity and of its salvation is the gift of a new life. The Lord said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. New birth. If any man be in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, he is a new creature, new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things have become new. What's a Christian? Well, says Peter, he is one who has become a partaker of the divine nature. Now, this is Christianity, you see. Not you as you are trying to make yourself better, pull yourself up and follow Christ. No, no, you're given the gift of a new life. It is as if you're born again, as if you become a child once, a new life, a spiritual life, born from above, born from heaven, born of God. Now, these are the terms used in the Bible, born of God. We are given an entirely new start. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Had you realized that this is Christianity? Offering you a new beginning. As the prodigal son was offered a new beginning, you can have a new beginning. In spite of all you've been, in spite of all you've done, in spite of all your ill desert, God will give you the gift of a new life. A new nature, a new principle will be put into you that will revolutionize your whole life. The Holy Spirit of God will come into you. That's what's offered. This is Christianity. Not exhortation to us to be moral and ethical and to protest against this. No, no. The gift of God is eternal life. To become children of God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Here's the offer. This is what people don't realize when they reject Christianity. But come, let's go on with it. The scope of this life. I like these terms, I brought you into a plentiful country. Oh, have a look round it tonight, my dear friend, and may the Spirit of God enlighten your eyes that you may see it. Come with me unto this mountain top. Let's have a look at the plentiful country that's spread out before us tonight. Do you see the river flowing? Do you see that gorgeous, fruitful valley? Come along, have a look at it. Have a look at Christianity as it really is tonight. You've never seen it. I'm sure you haven't. If you'd seen it, you'd never reject this. But you've never seen it. You're blind. Come, may the Spirit of God open your eyes to see it. Look at it, the scope of the life. Look at it in general. What does it offer me? Well, it offers me fellowship with God. There's nothing beyond that. Fellowship with God. People are very interested in fellowship, aren't they? They want to get into the exclusive clubs in this West End of London. Why, well, you meet the top people, they say. Fellowship with them, talking to them, rubbing shoulders with them. They'll pay thousands to do it. Get into Buckingham Palace. Say that you know the Queen. Speak to the Queen. Fellowship. Wonderful. They say, that's life. They say, you know, nothing is as great as that. I'd sell everything in order to have this. This is the thing that counts after all. You may have a very big bank balance. 
but you still may be a nobody. You see, what decides according to society uh, your size tonight is the people you know, the people with whom you have fellowship. That's how the world measures it. Well, all right, apply that standard to this realm, and here is what you're offered. Fellowship with God. This is life eternal, says Jesus Christ, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You know, says John, as an old man writing that first epistle of his, he says, These things write I unto you, that he might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, this is Christianity. Christianity isn't living a life according to certain rules. The essence of Christianity is to have fellowship with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. My dear friend, don't let anybody delude you. This is Christianity. It isn't taking a decision only or signing a name on a card. It may involve that or it may not. But you see, I don't care what you've got if you haven't got this. The fellowship of the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Can you name me anything higher than that? There is nothing, of course. Not only that fellowship with the apostles, that he might have fellowship with us, says John. You know, this is what happens when you become a Christian. Look at the company you're brought into. The holy fellowship of the apostles, the saints and the martyrs of the ages and of the centuries. You come among such people. You belong to the patriarchs now. That's what Paul keeps on telling these Gentiles. He says, you are aliens, you are enemies, strangers from the covenants and outside the commonwealth of Israel, but you've been brought in. You are fellow citizens with the saints now and of the household of God. Oh, my dear friend, have you ever thought of this? You see, you're not brought only into fellowship with God. You're adopted into his family. You become a child of God, become a son of God. You belong to the family of God, the royal family of heaven. Nothing less than that is what you're offered. And that's what you're rejecting if you turn your back upon Christianity and its offer. To be a child of God. And to be able to go to God with confidence in your need and say, My Father. This is the thing that people are despising and rejecting. I say they've never seen it. They don't know about it. And that other great word again, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now there it is in general. You know I'm hurrying through it tonight. There's matter here to keep you till midnight. Indeed this will be the theme of eternity of heaven itself. This is what they're singing about there. But the world knows nothing about it. Listen to it in general. Again I give you but headings. Look at the scope of this Christian life as regards your mind. Look at the things that it leads you to contemplate. People say Christianity is narrow. They mean by that narrow-minded and narrow for the mind. They say, but look, you people have got no interests. You see, you don't know what's happening. They say in the divorce courts. You don't know what's happening in the police courts. You are not reading these prohibited novels. You see, you're so narrow-minded. You see, we are reading these things. You are narrow-minded, you Christians. You haven't read, read that famous book, Lady Chatterley's Lover. You don't know about these things. You are narrow, you see. But we, now we are emancipated. Well, now then, let me tell you what Christianity offers for your mind. This book, you know. If you've got a giant intellect, my friend, I'll tell you what you should apply it to. You start reading the epistles of Paul. Have you ever read them? Have you ever gone through that epistle to the Ephesians? Have you ever contemplated what Thomas Carlyle called those infinities and immensities? Has your mind ever reveled in them as you watched the gigantic argument being deployed and that inevitable logic moving from step to step and the glories of salvation being revealed one after another? Do you know anything about it? This is what it gives to your mind. The epistles, the teaching. The teaching about God, the teaching about man, the teaching about Christ, the teaching about redemption, life and its purpose. It's only here you'll find it, you know. Tell me quite honestly, what do you really get in the novels? What do they really teach you? What do you get in the films? What do they really contribute to you? How do they help your manhood? 
your womanhood? How do they help you in the matter of chastity and purity? Do they ennoble your mind? You, perhaps, who may be here tonight, who have spent your day in reading these papers. What have they given you? Tell me what knowledge have you really got of life and of yourself. Tell me what you really know even about what's happening in the world today. What you know about the course of history. Do you see any plan in it or is it all just nonsense? Do you see some great purpose at the back of it all? You know, if you begin to read this book and study it, you'll begin to understand all these things. You'll begin to see the meaning of history. You'll begin to see the great glorious plan of God unfolding itself. Steadily and surely, in spite of everything that's happening, if you want, I say, scope and ambit for your mind, come here. Read these mighty epistles. Get into this book and the books about it. And you'll have enough, I say, to occupy you, not only for your life in this world, but for all eternity. But it doesn't stop at the mind. Look at what it gives to the heart. Look at the enjoyment that it gives. This is the great note of the New Testament. Listen to Peter writing to some humble Christian people. Most of them were slaves, and they were having rather a hard time when he wrote to them. He says, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, you rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's Christianity. Christian people in the midst of tribulations rejoicing in Christ with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Listen to Paul writing to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Christianity, narrow, miserable, boring, dull. But look here, there's no enjoyment like it. Rejoice evermore, he says. And John says, are these things I write unto you that your joy might be full? Joy he's talking about. Oh yes, you see, this is the real joy, the true joy. The joy that our Lord himself, under the shadow of the cross, offered and promised to his own followers. He said, my joy I give unto you. In the world ye shall have tribulations, but cheer up. I have overcome the world. I'll give you a joy, he says, that neither the world can give you nor ever take away from you. You know the Old Testament saints knew something about it. All these children of Israel were not like these people. Listen to David. And David was a man, you know, who was a real man, wasn't he? You want a man worthy of the name of men? You want a man of substance, a man of grit, a man of strong animal passions. You're interested in these things, aren't you? Sex and all the manifestations of sex. Well, David, you know, knew all about it. He could teach the modern weaklings a good deal, I, I, I imagine. And he has tried everything in his time. But having tried a bit of everything, this is what he says when he's getting a bit old. He says, I would sooner be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the ungodly. Why? Well, you know, the joy of the world always leaves you with a bitter taste in your mouth the next morning. There's always a reaction. There's always a hangover. There's always a misery and a shame that follow. It's not joy. It's only some temporary excitement. It leaves you exhausted. It leaves you miserable. It leaves you ashamed. It leaves you like a squashed out orange. There's nothing left. It's enervating. If you really want joy, my dear friend, come into this Christian life. Here is a joy unspeakable and full of glory, I said. You notice it in the hymns. You notice these hymns of praise and of rejoicing and of thanksgiving. You sang it at the beginning tonight. Pleasant are thy courts above in the land of light and love. Pleasant are thy courts below in this land of sin and woe. What's a cinema in comparison with a meeting like this? What's your brightest place of amusement in the world tonight in comparison with this kind of fellowship? My friends, this is joy. This is happiness, pure, unadulterated. The joy of the Lord. And then think about your will, the scope it gives your will. What's it give you? Freedom. You haven't got freedom outside Christ. You're a slave. Slave of fashion. Slave of lusts, passions, desires. Slave of tradition. It's the world that's in slavery. God be thanked, says the apostle again in writing to the Romans. In chapter 6, I believe it's verse 17. God be thanked that ye were the, the servants, the slaves of sin. But ye have believed from the heart the form of sound doctrine which was delivered unto you. And you're no longer slaves of sin. You are slaves and bond slaves of Jesus Christ, whose service is perfect freedom.
That's it. This is freedom, I say. This is what it does for the will. It gives it freedom. And it gives it power. You see, the Christian is a man who is given power. Power against his own utter weakness. Power against the temptations that come to him on all hands in a city like London. Power against the devil and all his forces. He can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It gives him strength to discipline himself. Oh, the miserable life of the modern man. He has no discipline. He's just a creature of his lusts and passions. He has no control over himself. Carried away by fashion, lust and desire. Here is a man who can discipline himself, control himself. He's a man worthy of the name. There's a nobility about him. There's a strength of character as an inherent part of his whole personality. That's what he does for the will. You see the largeness. I brought you into a plentiful country. And look at the plentifulness as it is expressed in the life that such people live. It's a good life in and of itself. This life of keeping the Ten Commandments, I'm not ashamed of it, I'm not going to apologize. Would to God that the whole world were keeping the Ten Commandments tonight. London would be a different place, Moscow would be a different place, and you'd have no need of a United Nations organization. It's a good life. And it's also a life that is of value to others. You know that other life, that sinful, worldly, unchristian life? It's a very selfish life. It's a very self-centered life. It's I first and I always first and last. It doesn't contribute to anybody. What's this generation really contributing? Nothing. Selfish and self-centered. What does the Christian life that's regarded as so narrow and so cramping contribute? Well, you just go back and read the story. It was Christian people who started hospitals. It was Christian people who started schools and teaching. It was Christian people who started the poor law relief. Do you know the greatest benefits have come from them? Abolition of slavery, factory acts, all have come from Christianity. Why, well, if this is the sort of life it is. It's a plentiful country. It's a large life. It brings us into a large and a wealthy place. And as I was saying, there is no bitterness in this life. No remorse, no unhappiness in this because of its essential goodness. Oh, it's a very plentiful life because it's a life that persists and goes on. It isn't something that gives you a great thrill. At the moment of decision only it does that, but it goes on doing it. It goes on giving you the fruit, the goodness, when you're surrounded by sorrow, when you lose your health. When you're encompassed by trials and tribulations, we rejoice also, says Paul, in tribulation. We don't only rejoice, but we rejoice also in tribulations. And when you become old and have lost your good looks and all your sex, and there you are decrepit and hopeless, you'll still bring forth fruit in old age, says the psalmist. It's a very fruitful land, this. It has fruit and goodness to give you in life right through. It doesn't forsake you even in death. It'll be with you always, ever. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand, bread of heaven. Feed me now and evermore, and he will. Death of death and hell's destruction. Land me safe on Canaan's side. And he will. Nothing else will. It's a plentiful redemption. There is a full salvation offered. It does all these things. And you know it not only takes you through the river of death. It will be with you in eternity. What is, it, what is it preparing us for? Well it's preparing us for the glory. One of our Lord's last, last petitions in his prayer was this. Father, I would that they should see my glory which I had with thee and that they might share it. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Oh, there is a glory coming. We know nothing about it. 
It's the glory in which God and Christ and the Spirit are dwelling and the spirits of just men made perfect. It's a land of pure delights where saints immortal reign. There is a glory baffling the highest imagination awaiting the saints of God, the believers in Christ. And it will go on and on forever and forever throughout eternity. I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when he entered, he defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. What can be said of such people? Well, there's only one thing to say, isn't there? Their taste is utterly depraved. That's their whole trouble. They are suffering from a depraved taste which is the result of a depraved nature. You know what you think of the sort of men who are looking at a great masterpiece of art says, I see nothing in it at all. You know what you say about him? You say very rightly, he doesn't tell me anything about that bit of art, but he tells me that he's got no taste at all. He's blind. He's depraved. And anybody who can reject this great salvation and this glorious sinful life is just proclaiming that he or she has a depraved nature. And you know, my friend, if you die with a depraved nature, there's only one place you can go. You can't go to heaven because you wouldn't enjoy it. It would be hell to you. If you die as you are, the sight of God far from pleasing you would be revolting to you. And the glory and the purity and the whiteness of heaven, you'd find it unutterable boredom to be singing God's praise forever and ever. You say, I can't imagine anything more boring. Very well. You see, if you die like that, you can look forward to nothing but a perpetuation of the kind of life you're living now, except that it'll be very much worse. Misery, wretchedness, remorse, and unhappiness never satisfied. Oh, my dear friend, see the enormity of rejecting so great a salvation. Fly to God and acknowledge it all. Ask him to have pity and mercy and compassion. Ask him to give you a new heart. Say to him with David, create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Ask him in the words of Christ to take from you that nature that loves the darkness and hates the light and give you a nature that will love the light and hate the darkness. Ask him to give you that new birth, that new nature that new start, that new beginning. Ask him to make you a partaker of the divine nature, of his own nature. Ask him to work the miracle. He'll do it. It's the free gift you have got to ask. I pledge you, if you ask really desiring it, he will give it to you. For he has said, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no while cast out. You need new life, a new beginning, a new nature. Ask him for it. You'll receive it. And you know you'll begin upon the enjoyment of the glories of the Bible. Glories of fellowship with God. Fellowship with the saints. And in anticipation, you will rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Oh, make no terror. Fly to him. Beseech him to give you this new nature, this new life. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.